For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You, sh and shall, you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. <coughs> Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim. I don't know if I was stinking excited about <laughs> these young people and their verbiage nowadays. What's, what's a bling? <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to catch up. Uh, but anyway, that's fine. I, I am honored to preach this text. Uh, I'm, I'm excited that we are drawing to the conclusion of our series in the book of Malachi uh, and look forward to moving from there. This is the last word of God to his people in the Old Testament era uh, prior to God coming himself in the form of his son incarnate in the world. It was the fall of 1861, Julia Ward Howell and her husband, Dr. Samuel Howell, were invited to visit the city of Washington, D.C., as you well know, in American history, this was in the dawning days of the American uh, uh, Civil War, a very dark time in the history of our nation. And they were visiting there uh, with dignitaries and were invited to go out outside of the city limits and out some distance where they were treated to a review of federal troops. And she looked across that sea of tents pitched on the fields as the sun was setting and campfires were beginning to blaze. And someone suggested to her that she needed to write a poem about her experience. And um, she must have been a poet, and they know it. But anyway, um, that's bad, Wendy. But out of that, she wrote the lyrics to the song that you and I sang, or one of the songs that you and I sang this morning. Sometimes people think of the Battle Hymn of the Republic only in terms of patriotic occasions. We normally sing it at uh, 4th of July, around that time of the year. And it is a patriotic hymn. In fact, as it began, as the poem was put to a tune, taken from an old southern camp meeting. I thought it was interesting. The words of a Yankee and the tune of a southerner blended together to become the battle hymn of the Republic. But anyway, it became the theme song of the Union troops as a chaplain with the Union Army heard the tune, heard the words, 
and insisted on his troops singing it, and they did, and then one company to another company before you know it, they were all singing it up north, whereas down south it was Dixie. But anyway, um, the, the thing that struck me is, you know, of course the song became popular over the decades, the battle hymn of the Republic as it was called. I, I prefer to refer to it as, Mine eyes have seen the glory. Uh, because that's what the writer is really talking about. She's not writing about a military, human military campaign. She's not writing about a historic epic in American history. This lady knew her scripture. She knew about the day of the Lord. Well, anyway, this, this hymn became popular. And uh, by the time of World War II, George Patton, General George Patton, ordered it to be played for the troops that he was sending into action in the European front during World War II. It so impressed him. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson uh, insisted that the song be sung by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in his inauguration in January of 1965. Winston Churchill requested that the song be played in Westminster uh, Abbey uh, on, on uh, his funeral, which was January the 30th of 1965. It was played uh, and sung by Andy Williams uh, at the um, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City in June of 1968 at the memorial service of Robert F. Kennedy. So it is a very popular hymn, to say the least. The words should strike uh, terror in the hearts of those who are enemies of God, but it should stir up great joy and hope in the hearts of those of us who know the Lord and are looking for His return one day. We can sing with great exuberance, He is coming like the glory of the morning on the wave. He is wisdom to the mighty, He is honor to the brave. So the world shall be His footstool and His faithful, He shall save our God is marching on. Amen? And so with that, this majestic hymn introducing us to this last chapter of the book of Malachi, we talk about the coming day of the Lord. That is the focus of what Malachi is, is, is drawing the attention of the people that he's addressing on behalf of God during that time period. But it's not a new theme. The concept of the day of the Lord was not a new idea in prophecy, and certainly not to the nation of Israel. In fact, before we jump in at chapter 4, verse 1, I want to just take you back quickly to the book of Joel. Joel was a prophet that was preaching to God's people some 400 years before Malachi came on the scene. In fact, the whole book of Joel is about what he calls the awful day of the Lord. And so you find the writing of this mid-9th century B.C. prophet who's utilizing imagery that Israel as a nation was familiar with. When he's talking about the judgment of God being brought down upon the people of God because of their rebellious attitude towards God. God would not sit by idly and let them get away with the contemptuous and rebellious attitude towards God. He would bring judgment, and it would be a terrible judgment. 
Joel would use images like a, a, an invading army coming in and sweeping across the, the fields and the herds and, and ransacking the homes and, and wreaking havoc and creating destruction. He would use imagery of, of terrible swarms of locusts coming in and, and eating up the vegetation upon which the people depended. He would describe a terrible time that the people would certainly dread. But these were simply figurative images because Joel had in mind that God was going to bring great judgment upon the nation of Israel because of their rebelliousness towards God. Look with me in Joel chapter 1 verse 13. Hear the intensity of this Old Testament prophet as he speaks of this day of the Lord. He says in verse 13 chapter 1, Gird yourselves and lament you priest. Well, you who minister before the altar, come lie all night in sackcloth, which is a form of mourning. You who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of, our, of, our, of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to God. Cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It, is, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. A day of darkness. Well, look back at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been seen, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Indeed, God did fulfill this prophetic warning about a day of the Lord in a historic sense. As we go through Malachi, we'll be looking at the ultimate fulfillment of the day of the Lord. But even in a historical sense, God fulfilled this warning that he gave through Joel. First in 722 B.C. when God sent the, the barbaric and, 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 and crude and, 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 and murderous troops of the Assyrian armies as they swept like a massive locust swarm, if you will, this massive army from Assyria swept across the northern ten tribes of, of Israel. And, and murdered and ransacked and took all the survivors or many of the survivors into captivity. That was the first wave of the day of the Lord that Joel was speaking of there. But then in 586, God also brought judgment upon the southern kingdom. That There's two tribes that remain that we know as, as Judah, the nation of Judah. When God sent King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army in 586 and they swept across the land of Judah, not only did they ransack homes and destroy crops and murder citizens, but they made their way to Jerusalem. The unthinkable happened as God allowed His judgment to be poured upon that city and the city walls were destroyed and the temple of God. Likewise, Oh, listen, God sent a clear warning to his people that that day, that terrible day of judgment would come. But you know, it's interesting, 200 years later, in Zephaniah, another of the minor prophets, in chapter 1, you'll find a similar warning. God again warning his people because of their rebellious attitudes towards him, because of their sinfulness and immorality. 
In chapter 1 of Zephaniah, in verse 14, he says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all the, those who dwell in the land. What a gloomy picture. What an ominous warning from God. When we make our way back over to Malachi in chapter 4, as we are looking at the conclusion of this book, and, and as we see Malachi opening up this chapter, at this warning to the people, you may say that he picks up on this theme of the great day of the Lord in verse 1. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Sabaoth, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Jo I mean, uh, Malachi is describing the consuming fire of our holy God. Now, this shouldn't surprise anyone unless you just happen to get here today and this is the first time you've read Malachi and you just walked right in on chapter 4. You might be saying, those poor Jews. Why would a holy and loving God do such a, a terrible thing to such loving people? But you and I, because we've been walking through the book of Malachi, we understand, don't we? We understand that the very people that are in a covenant relationship with holy God are anything but holy. Because they have proven that they are rebellious, they are arrogant from the leaders all the way down to the people. They have argued with God, at least towards His prophet. They've lied to God. They've disrespected His sacrifices and offerings. Why, they've even robbed God of His tithes and His offerings. And finally, they have hurled unjustified accusations at holy, merciful, almighty God. Are you wondering why the wrath of God is building up and building up and building up? To the point that we find him giving this, this very clear and ominous warning to the people. And God says, I will send that wrath. He says, behold. In other words, watch out, look out. For the day of the Lord is coming. It's burning like an oven and all the proud. Yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. God says those who are wicked, those who have rebelled against me, those who sin against me, those who are arrogant towards me. He says, and they think they're getting away with it. But he says there will come a day. There is coming a day where you will face my judgment and it will be a fierce judgment. It will be a consuming wrath that will be poured out upon the people. When he says that the wicked will be left as stubble, folks, he's cutting the heads off. He's going through the field and mowing them down. And if that's not good enough, then he's saying not only that, 
that the fire of my wrath will come along and burn them, and not only burn the stalks, but I will burn their roots. We're talking about a final dealing with evil here, ladies and gentlemen. When you kill the roots of a plant, that's why I love uh, Roundup. All my neighbors are out spraying liquid fertilizer, and I'm out spraying Roundup. That's a miracle, you know, to deal with weeds because it not only kills that plant, it gets to the root. It's not going to grow anymore. You've dealt with the weeds once and for all when you give them a good dose of Roundup. God is saying that day is coming. That day is coming. Evil keeps raising its head in the midst of my people. Sin keeps raising its head in the midst of my people. But God says there is coming a day, the day of the Lord, when I will once and for all ultimately deal with the presence of sin and evil. Now, holding your place there in, cha in, in chapter 4 of Malachi, let me take you to the last book of the Bible because I want you to see how very clearly God describes prophetically in that wonderful vision that revelation that God gives to the Apostle John, he describes that day. You and I are in between Malachi and Revelation. That day is to come. Thank the Lord and praise his holy name. We won't have to endure that day because God doesn't pour his wrath out upon his faithful. But that day is coming. In fact, if you go back to Revelation in chapter 19, I will direct your attention to verse 11. This is the second advent. We just celebrated the first advent of Jesus in his incarnation. But now we're focusing upon what is the second. He's coming again, ladies and gentlemen. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has indeed come to the earth. Praise the holy name of our Savior. Because of that, we are saved. Amen? But he's coming again. He won't come as a meek little baby. He won't come as a humble teacher. He will come in power. He will come in glory. He will come in dominion. He will come in judgment. How do we know? Because God tells us in his word in Revelation 19. I'll direct your attention to verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he, speaking of Christ, who sat on him, was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were, were many crowns. Symbolizing his omnipotence, his power, unlimited power. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood as a sacrificial lamb of God. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. I tend to believe or agree with some commentaries that that's us. You'll notice that we're not fighting though. You'll just notice that we're an army riding on white horses. We don't have to worry about fighting. Why? Because Christ does the fighting. Okay, let me move along. Verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sword, a sharp sword. That with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of, of Almighty God. Made me think about Miss, Ward, Miss Howell's song when she talked about the winepress of the wrath of God. In verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is there any mistake about who's riding the white horse? 
None whatsoever. It is the Lord himself. It is the God of all gods. It is the king of all kings, the Lord of lords. It is the Lord Jesus Christ returning to bring about this great day of judgment upon evil. Now, I'm not going to read all the way through to the end of chapter 19, but there's a great battle, and, and God brings forth, uh, or the Lord brings forth a great slaughter. He slaughters all the kings and all the armies. And in verse 19, or verse 20 rather, he takes the Antichrist, the beast, he captures him and throws him into the eternal lake of fire. He grabs up the false prophet who's also rendered great damage to the kingdom of God during the tribulation time and throws him into the lake of fire. And it says in verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds filled their flesh. There was a great feast for the buzzards and any other bird. I know probably ruining somebody's appetite about now. But anyway, all those corpses laying across this massive battlefield and Jesus fulfills the wrath of God, part one, part one. You say, well, what do you mean part one? Well, you notice in chapter 20 and verse two, it talks about the devil. There he is. Been wondering where that old slinky slew foot was. There he is. But look what, look, look what happens in chapter uh, 20, verse 2 of Revelation. It says, he, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Didn't throw him into the lake of fire. Not yet. Not yet. And then Jesus establishes his reign on the earth for a thousand years, if you read further in chapter 20. But then something interesting happens in verse 20, uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 7. Satan's been in the bottomless pit. He's been bound up for a thousand years. The Lord releases him. Part two. Remember I said part one of the day of the Lord, the great and fierce wrath of God. Part two is about to happen because Satan then is allowed to muster up a massive following, rebelling against God. That's, that's almost unbelievable, isn't it? Here they go through the great tribulation. They've been spared. They're into the millennial reign. They, they're, they're under the, the, the direct rule of Christ. But remember, these are people that came through the tribulation who carry with them the old Adamic sinful nature to this point. And so, yes, there's that tendency. Given the right leader, they would rebel. And many of them rebelled against God. Did they get away with it? Not hardly. It says in verse 9 of chapter 20, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and the fire came down. You remember Malachi? God said, I'm bringing fire. I'm bringing my wrath in the form of a terrible fire. It says there in chapter 20, verse 9, and the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Poof, just like that. Everybody that rose up in rebellion against the reign of Christ was immediately incinerated. You see, God doesn't mess around. He says, and our wrath will be poured out upon those who are arrogant and rebellious. Now the devil gets his due in verse 10 of chapter 20. It says, and the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, in other words, the Antichrist and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is yet to come. Don't think that the devil's in hell, okay? He's still running loose. He's still creating havoc. And he's still generating all kinds of bad things in God's people. So don't think he's down there in hell bound up. One day it will happen, but not yet. Part two of the great day of the Lord has to happen. But you know, it's interesting as we read further in chapter 20, there's a great white throne of judgment. Every person, every person 
will be brought up before this great white throne. Every person that has ever lived that has rebelled against God, rejected Jesus Christ, will be brought up. They'll be brought from the sea. Their bodies will be recomposed. They'll be standing there before the one on the white throne, and that is Christ himself. He will be the judge. And they will hear him say, because of their rebellious hearts and their, their sinfulness and rejection of the, of, of the gospel, they will hear him say, depart from me, for I have never known you. And they will be cast into that eternal lake of fire. That's where they have their fiery demise in eternity there. Okay, but, but, but before we go back to Malachi, I've got to show you something else. Because, okay, the, the, the devil's been dealt with, the Antichrist, the, the false prophet, all the sinful people have been thrown into hell. Uh, what happens? Well, it's interesting that you ask. If I could quickly take you over to 2 Peter... I think it's interesting God spoke to the Apostle Peter to give us a glimpse of what the, 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 the finality, the, the great culmination of the day of the Lord. God has dealt with sinful man, but he's going to deal with sinful creation. Peter tells us there in 2 Peter chapter 3, if you'll look there with me, first in verse 7, he says, But the heavens and the earth, which now exist, are kept in store. By the same word, in other words, word of God, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That's just happened. The great white throne of judgment has occurred. Now, Peter says, look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. I think about all these people who are secularly minded, the humanists and the people who are building their empires here on the earth, and they won't. They want big statues built of them, the pyramids and, and massive statues. They want some permanent remind, reminder left for people to remember them for, for years and centuries to come. I got news for them. Their empires, whether it be a pyramid or it be a skyscraper in Manhattan, listen, all of it's going up in smoke. All of it's going up in smoke. God will bring about His ultimate judgment upon the world and not only the earth, but all of the universe. Dr. John MacArthur in his study Bible on that portion of Scripture describes this great uh, cataclysmic destruction of the earth and the, and the whole, all the heavens, if you will. It's, it's, it's like the Big Bang. Y'all ever heard of that? Well, there is a Big Bang. The only problem is secular scientists have gotten it backwards. The Big Bang was not used to create the universe. God created the universe. The Big Bang, described by Peter there, is God's way of destroying the universe. And in the language Dr. John MacArthur was pointing out, in the language that Peter's using there, this is a molecular destruction. In other words, protons are colliding against electrons, against um, um, like everything else that makes up an atom. And atoms are colliding. And there's this great explosion. Come on, help me, physicist. This is when you need a physicist. And there is a great nuclear explosion that destroys the earth, destroys all of the uh, solar system and all of the, all the heavens as we know it. It goes up in one massive 
incinerating explosion. I tell you that simply, don't get too attached to things of this world. Now, if you're investing in gold, that's fine for now. But it's going up in smoke. If you got a jewelry box or fine jewelry, that's fine. If it's in your safe deposit box, that's fine. If you got real estate, that's good for right now. But don't get too attached to it. Don't put too much of your confidence in those things that God will actually utterly destroy one day. But the good news is, Peter goes on to describe that God then immediately creates the new heaven and the new earth. Welcome home, Christians. We'll talk about that in another series. Praise the Lord. Go back to Malachi, if you would, chapter 4. Because this, this portion has dealt with those who are rebellious against God, those who are sinful. There is going to be a consuming fire from holy God against those who are rejecting God. So when you see world leaders and you see business leaders and you see educational leaders and you see these people who are so proud of themselves and so arrogant and they thumb their nose up against God and the concept of, of a supernatural, listen, you don't need to get all bent out of shape. You don't need to, to get up in their face and argue with them. They'll have their day. They'll have their day. You focus on you. What does God have to say for you and me about this great day of the Lord? Well, the majority of chapter 4 speaks to us. Those who are faithful. God only used up one verse. I've used up half of my time. But God only used one verse to describe His day of the Lord, wrath upon the ungodly. But look at verse 2. He says, but to you who fear my name. Remember last time I talked to you in chapter 3, there, there is a remnant. Even in the face of such, such rampant sinfulness and rejection and rebelliousness towards God, there is a faithful remnant. And they will come over into the intertestamental period, into the New Testament era, and they will pick up, and there you'll have faithful has always had a remnant of people who don't give up hope, who believe. And he's addressing those. He says, that day is coming. There is a great day coming. But look for those who are faithful. He says, but to you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Let me pause for a commercial break real quickly. Apologize to the production team. I know I jumped over a segment, so if you want to just move on down to a day of joyful celebration, because I feel like we beat up on the wicked enough, but if you want to... <laughs> Because I, I had included a section just to talk about those who would face the awesome, awful power of God. And over and over, God says, you will face my power, but you will not be able to endure it. You will not be able to stand. You can muster up all the armies. And indeed, we saw that that's what the, the, the leaders of the world did. They did. They amassed, they amassed the greatest, the strongest of the military in presence. And what was it? God, shoot, incinerated them. You can't stand against the omnipotence of God, El Shaddai. He's omnipotent. He's invincible. He's all-powerful. But to those who are faithful, He is loving and merciful 
And hence, a day for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, for those faithful Jews who did not lose their sense of commitment to the covenant relationship that they enjoyed with God, they, there is a day of joyful celebration. A day of faithful, of, of joyful celebration for the faithful. I like the imagery that he's using there in verse 2. He says, But to those of you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise. You, you, you can, I don't know if you're like I am. I'm kind of a romantic. I love sunrises. And, you know, uh, sunrises here are wonderful, but sunrises at the beach are premium. But, you know, it's just something about waiting for that early morning hour and then and, and the first sign of the sun peaks above the horizon. Listen, I don't know about you, but maybe you've been through some dark days, some dark periods in your life. And if you're suffering and grieving through the night, and the night is so dark, and it's so quiet, and it's so lonely. Listen, there's, there's something in your spirit that just yearns for the sunrise. Oh, if the sun could just peak its, its rays above the trees, if I could just see the first glimmer of light, there'd be hope. God is saying to those persecuted believers living in the time of Israel, He's saying to the persecuted, He's saying to the tormented, He's saying to those who were tortured, He's saying to those who've been intimidated and, and those who've been deprived and those who've been battered and those who've been broken. And listen, He's not just saying it to the, the faithful in that era, He's saying it to the faithful today. Historians tell us that there are more Christians being persecuted in the 21st century than any other century in the life of the church. And God is saying to these brothers and sisters who are in prison, in places like northern Sudan or Indonesia and other parts of the world, God is saying to those who have lost their homes and lost their families and their lives are on the line and they, all they see is darkness, God is saying, don't give up. Don't give up. The sun is going to rise. And he says, the S-U-N, the son of righteousness. That's who Christ is. In a dark and desolate, sinful world, when Christ appears on the scene in the midst of persecution and torment, he shines a light, a warming light of his righteousness upon those who trust in him. And you know, in that day, we will experience healing. It talks about with healing in His wings. Over and over, God's Word uses the imagery of a, of a mother hen or bird as it just covers its, its children, its, its little biddies, and just gets them up under her wing. If, a if that little bird is injured, what does the mother do? She, she puts her wing over. She protects it. God is saying, there will come a day when I'll put my wings over you and there will be healing. And He says, and you, you who have been in prison, those of you who've been intimidated, those of you who've been uh, persecuted because of your faith, He says, like a calf that's been stalled up to get fat for the slaughter, He says, the gate's going to be swung open and you'll run out and you'll kick up your heels. I remember in the rough parts of the winter we'd have to sometimes stable our cows and calves and horses and things like that. And, and you know some of those long dark winter days would be kind of miserable for that animal's 
cooped up in a small stall with other animals. And boy, when the sun finally came out, we'd go down there and we'd start taking them out and letting them out in the pasture. Boy, old milk cows that hardly had any energy all be kicking their heels up, boy. They'd be jogging around the pasture. The small calves would be kicking up and jumping. Oh, they were so glad to be free. God says, that's the way it'll be in the day of the Lord for my people. You've been confined. You've been haunted. You've been hounded. You've been persecuted. But I'll throw the gate open under the freedom you'll be in the presence of the Lord and there will be great joy and that's what the Lord is promising to those of us as we read further there in verse 3 he says you shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this says the Lord of hosts there won't be any atheists or militant agnostics there won't be any hard hearted uh, dictators, there won't be terrorists, there won't be those who are uh, in opposition so publicly and sometimes militarily against the preaching of the Word of God and the Kingdom of God. Where will they be, Pastor? Well, we saw earlier, didn't we, in verse 1, they're going up in smoke. God says, I'm going to burn them up. You won't have to stumble over them. You won't have to run from them. You won't have to be hindered by them any longer. He says they'll be ashes under your feet, so to speak. And I think about men like Adolf Hitler and, and Joseph Stalin and some of the other dictators who had the Caesars during the early church, Nero and some of those who have wreaked havoc upon the people of God. Oh, listen... Listen, there'll be mere ashes under the feet of the children of God when the day of the Lord comes. He will have taken care of you. will never have to worry about anybody raising a fist to you because of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what a glorious day. But you know, it's interesting, the Lord not only talks about the righteousness of, the, uh, of those who are righteousness or those who are righteous prevailing, but He also talks about the day of the Lord pointing to the past and the future. And, and with that, I'd like to direct your attention to verse 4, where Malachi is saying to the, to the faithful, he said, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with statutes and judgments. You see what he's saying? He's saying, now listen, now, I know Pastor Tim has been very meticulously, carefully preaching through Galatians and helping us to understand you don't need the law. You don't need the law. We don't because we're under a new covenant, a covenant of grace. It's the antithesis of grace. But in this time period, 450 B.C., the people of God are still a covenant people. And he's reminding them that as faithful as the faithful, they still need to abide by and obey the law of Moses because that is what sets them apart. Jehovah Makedesh, the God who sanctifies and sets his people apart to be holy. The way that he distinguishes his people was by giving them his perfect law and then them living according. God says, listen, stay close to the law. The law defines who you are. You demonstrate your faithfulness and your love for me by being obedient to this law. But then it's interesting. God reaches back into history and pulls out an, a, another great old a, a, a leader in the history of Israel when he talks about Elijah. Remember Elijah? 
probably the prophet of prophets, if you would. I still see him on Mount Carmel confronting the 450 false prophets of Baal and then single-handedly slaying them, you know. And all. Oh, he was a man. of He, he wasn't afraid of fire, was he? Uh-uh, call it down from heaven. But let me tell you something. God says, you know what? I, he says in, in verse 5 there, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Elijah has been dead. Well, taken up into heaven. We know he was one of the ones that didn't die. But he's been gone for a long time. But you know, it's interesting. God keeps bringing up the name of Elijah because in chapter 3 we saw, he says, I will bring forth a messenger and this messenger will prepare the way. This is a type of Elijah. And that's the description that's given to John the Baptist. And, and in fact, if you'll hold your place there in chapter 4 of Malachi, let me just take you over to Luke's gospel, chapter 1. Because a, a very interesting discussion takes place, I guess a monologue really. The angel is talking to, actually a dialogue between Zechariah, Zecharias and, um, and uh, Gabriel the angel. And he's talking, he's, uh, Gabriel is, is, is announcing to Zecharias that he and his elderly wife, his childless wife Elizabeth, are going to have a son. And, and I want you to see something that, that the angel tells Zechariah in chapter 1 verse 16 of Luke's gospel he says about John the Baptist he says and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and then you go back to Malachi and you see this is what Malachi was talking about he says, Behold, in verse 5 of chapter 4 of Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers and children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, and I come and strike the earth with a, a curse. God is saying, I'm not going to send Elijah personally. I will send a type of Elijah. And that's what John the Baptist was. In his preaching, he was like an Elijah out of the Old Testament. And his message was powerful. It was a message of repentance. And we, we, you and I both know that the formula for revival is repentance. There's got to be repentance for people to be restored in their relationship with God. When people are restored in their relationship with God, guess what? They are restored in their relationships first in the family. Hence revival. Then I believe that as Malachi is describing this He's not only talking about John the Baptist. He's talking about yet another great Elijah. Elijah shows up more than once. Or an Elijah type. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was there with his trusted disciples. His three of his closest disciples. And there they saw Moses and Elijah. As confirmation of the law and the prophets. But then God says in the last days. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord. I will send another Elijah type. He will be preaching a powerful message. This will have to be during the time of the, the tribulation because that's just prior to the day of the Lord. And he says, and he will indeed, he will come and he will lead many back to the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And then God concludes through Malachi, the last verse uh, the last line of the last verse of the last chapter of the Old Testament, God says, I'll, I, I will do all of this lest I come and strike the earth 
with a curse. God says, if this didn't happen, if I didn't make these provisions, there'd be no other option. As in the days of Noah, I would have to strike a curse upon the whole world. But aren't you glad that God includes in His plan not just judgment upon the wicked, not just judgment upon the sinful, but He also offers a plan that includes a word of hope to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about the words of the Apostle Paul in his writing to his protege Titus in Titus chapter 2. He says in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look up, brothers and sisters. Don't be distracted by the evilness of the world. Don't be distracted by the temptations of the culture in which we live. Look up. Don't hang your head in despondency and depression because of the bad circumstances that surround us. Look up. Don't be discouraged when you see so many going the opposite way, the broad way that leads to destruction, and there's so few who walk with you on that narrow way to life. Don't be discouraged. Look up. Because our Lord is coming. There is coming a day. It could be tomorrow. It could be sooner than you would ever imagine. The day of the Lord would occur and we will be with Him and we will see Him face to face. This looking up for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look up. 